Good morning, uh, dear congregation, as we gather for worship. We hear God's call from Psalm 84. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. Shall we come before the Lord then in a time of silent prayer? Let's turn in the blue hymnal to number 134 and sing to God's praise. This is from Psalm 72, but number 134 in the hymnal will sing the six verses. His wide dominion shall extend from sea to utmost sea, and unto earth's remotest bounds his peaceful rule shall be. We'll sing the six verses of number 134 in the blue hymnal.
is in the name of the Lord, who has made the heavens and the earth. Dear congregation, grace to you and peace from God our Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll read the law of God as it comes to us in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5 on page 190 of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 5, I'll begin with verse 6, where we're given the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. As the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you, so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So far, the reading of the law of God. Let's sing in response to it from the blue hymnal number 73. Number 73, we'll sing verses 1, 2, and then the last two verses, verses 5 and 6. So verses 1, 2, 5 and 6. How blessed the man who thoughtfully the poor and weak befriends. Deliverance in the evil day to him Jehovah sends. So verses 1, 2, Five and six of number 73 in the Blue Hymnal.
Well, we read from the law of God uh, this morning, uh, God's commandment uh, not to steal, thou shalt not steal, which of course implies the positive command, right? That you shall respect your neighbor. And also the, the commandment going farther to, to assist our neighbor when he needs. If there's something that's clear in the Bible, my friends, it's that God hates oppression. He hates oppression. Listen to these words from Amos 5 and verse 10. Verse 11, Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. Therefore, at such a time, the prudent person keeps silent. For it is an evil time. So God hates oppression. And he also puts a very strong obligation upon Christians to provide for the poor and the weak and the needy in society. Seek good and not evil that you may live, says God through Amos the prophet. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. And then for an assurance of pardon, these last words from verse 15. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And that's also our hope and our assurance that God's grace would extend to us even in light of our failings in this regard. Well, let's come before the Lord uh, in prayer. You'll know, uh, dear congregation, that this uh, week we uh, postponed the Wednesday night fellowship meeting uh, due to the weather, so it hopes to take place this coming Wednesday and uh, you're cordially invited to that if you find it interesting. Uh, we hope to consider Robert Louis Dabney and his support of Southern slavery and lessons that we can learn from that for our own time. Well, let's come before the Lord then in prayer. Almighty and merciful God and Father, uh, the great King of this universe, Lord, you have all things in your hands. No one can say to you, what are you doing? No one can call you to an account. You know the end from the beginning. You know what will be. You know what might have been. And you know the past. You know our inner thoughts, our hidden thoughts, our motives and intents. And you know our actions. Lord, everything is naked and open before your all-seeing eye. And we are thankful, O Lord, for that. Even though it is a terribly unsettling and challenging thing for us to know that you see the darkest corners of our hearts. And yet we know also, O Lord, that you can see Uh, the integrity of our hearts in those times, Lord, when we have earnestly desired to serve you. And even when we have failed, Lord, you know our desire is to honor you in all that we say and all that we do. And so we pray, Lord, that you would forgive our failings in this regard. Also our failings in regard to the Eighth Commandment, Lord, in not caring for those who are downtrodden and poor uh, in our church and outside of our church. Lord, I pray that you would bless our desire uh, to do so. And that where we have opportunity, we would take hold of it and do and, and minister to the relief of those who so desperately need it. Lord, what an ocean of grief and misery and tears we see all around us in this world. Lord, we start in the nation of Ukraine where this terrible war grinds on, on and on, day after day, another thousand dead and another thousand dead the next day. And slaughter and destruction. Men using all their intelligence to think of better ways to kill their fellow man. Lord, we are horrified and appalled at the destruction taking place 
between two countries who have no reason to fight each other and every reason to work together. And yet so it is, Lord, that we see the total depravity of the human heart on full display before us in the news every day again and again. But Lord, we earnestly cry out to you with all your people that you would bring a speedy end to this terrible destruction, that this war would come to an end. Lord, that you would destroy those who seek to carry on this war and to perpetuate it and to expand it, that you would bless those, Lord, who seek for peace and for compromise. Lord, I pray for your people in the country of Ukraine. I pray that you will remember them, Lord, and be a fiery wall of protection round about them as you have promised in your word. And also for your people in Russia who stand by while their nation perpetrates this great evil upon another country. Lord, I pray that you'd give them boldness and courage to speak truth to power, even, Lord, when it is certain to cost them greatly. Lord, we pray for the men who fight this battle, who pull the triggers and who shoot the bombs and the missiles. Lord, we know that many of them have no interest in this war whatsoever. Lord, we pray that the gospel would come to them with power and that before they die, they might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who forgives sin. Lord, we do pray that you will bless also our own nation. We pray, O God, that even though we are not at war at present, that yet there is something of a war going on in this nation between good and evil, between those who seek to uphold morality and justice and truth and those who seek to tear it down. Lord, we earnestly pray that you would come in this nation and revive your work in the midst of the years, that you would revive the churches in this land and that you would revive the hearts and the minds of those who lead this nation and who make decisions, that they would make decisions, Lord, in keeping with your word and in keeping with the truths that you've given and laid out there Lord, we sometimes despair that it could ever happen, that this nation ever could be turned around again. Lord, we we even look at something like the national debt, which now appears to be to such insurmountable heights that we wonder how we could ever dig out of it again. But Lord, we know that with you, wonders can be done. And we pray, Lord, uh, we pray, O God, that you would give fiscal uh, sense and and, uh, good decision-making policies also as it pertains to our fiscal health. But Lord, we long to see moral and spiritual health, moral and spiritual revival in our nation. That men and women, young and old, rich and poor alike, would come to put their trust under the shadow of the wings of Christ Jesus. That they would put their trust in him. That they would resolve to follow him wherever you would lead. Lord, we do pray for those faithful churches in this land that are raising up a a trumpet sound against against the wickedness that dwells in our land. We pray, Lord, that you would multiply their number, that you would help them to continue to stand strong and courageous. Lord, we pray for those churches that have compromised on these principles, that have sought to make a truce, as it were, with the enemy, who have sought to reach over across the antithesis, across this great divide that exists between us, and have thought to make compromise there. But Lord, I pray that there, too, you would revive your work And that these men and women also would realize that there can be no compromise made with evil. That what does light have to do with darkness? What does godliness have to do with with evil? And I pray, Lord, that you would remember remember your people in this nation and give them wisdom and discernment and courage to stand strong in the evil day. That like Noah, we might be faithful in our generation. Lord, I do pray that you remember our own church, Lord, as we stand here from week to week gathering for worship. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us this day. We're thankful that we could gather here, Lord, even in spite of the weather. We pray, Lord, that you would watch over our loved ones. 
here uh, and, and everywhere as they travel on roads that have now been made dangerous and slippery. Lord, we pray that your angel would guide and keep us and protect us from accidents and from harm. Lord, we think also of our children who are exposed to so many dangers. Lord, when our eye is not upon them, they can stumble into danger and to, and to hurt themselves. Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that you would watch over our children and keep them. Even when our eye is not upon them, Lord, we know that your eye is upon them. And we pray that you would keep them and watch over them. We pray for Warren DeYoung, Lord, that his hands would heal from the burns that he's received. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, remember that family. And we pray for a quick and speedy healing. Lord, we do lift up also uh, Olivia, the daughter of Jake and Lexi, Chad and Kathy's granddaughter, uh, who had some concerns with uh, jaundice. And we pray, Lord, that this might soon be uh, brought under control again and that this child could be uh, growing and thriving. And we pray for safe return for Chad and Kathy in due time. Lord, we pray that you will bless our brother, Bill Bukestein, who hopes to preach here this evening. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be upon him and that the message he brings would be a message for us, Lord, from you, that you would speak through him, and that we might be crying out all together as a congregation, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And so we pray for your blessing upon us. Lord, we pray for our elders and our deacons. This morning, Lord, as we take up the subject of deacons, we pray that you would help us to understand your word and the teaching that it gives us as it pertains to this office of the church. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless our brother deacons as they labor in the work of the church here, and as they are truly servants, uh, laboring uh, selflessly for the good of this church, making a sacrifice of their time. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless them and give them the reward that you've promised to the deacons. And that they might, O oh Lord, do their work with their eye fixed upon the great deacon, the great servant who said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Lord, we ask all these things in the strong name of Jesus, who is God over all and blessed forever. Amen. Your offering will now be received. May the Lord bless you and your gifts. Almighty God, we commit into your hands our tithes and offerings again. Pray, Lord, that you would use these monies to advance your cause and kingdom throughout this world. Lord, we know you can work with us or without us, and yet it pleases you to work with us and to enable us, Lord, to give to the cause of the gospel. And so we pray, Lord, that you would advance your cause and kingdom throughout this world, even to the hearts of those who are bitterly opposed to it, and that they might come and find their life in Christ. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's turn in the blue hymnals then and sing to God's praise number 302. We'll sing the three verses of 302. In verse 2, we hope to sing, The Lord upholds the poor and meek. He brings the wicked low. Sing praise to him and give him thanks and all his goodness show. We'll sing the three verses of number 302 in the blue hymnal. scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 6. We'll read Acts chapter 6. We'll read the whole chapter. Acts 6 and verse 1. Now at this time, While the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, 
but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. And they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs of which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Well, last week we considered the office of elder and the responsibilities that God has placed upon these men in the leadership of the church. This week we'd like to look at deacons. Deacons. It's clear, uh, dear, dear congregation, that God has laid, upon the, laid the responsibility upon his people to care for the poor. This is part of the problem that we begin with already in the early church. Uh, remember that the Spirit of God was poured out upon the Jewish people on the day of Pentecost, and these people came to hear the preaching of Peter, By the power of the Spirit, they believed in Christ and they became Christians. And as their number grew and expanded, right, and that's what we see already in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, in other words, the church is growing rapidly. And at the time, the apostles would have taken charge of the church and would have provided the leadership necessary to ensure that all things were done well and in good order. Now, were there elders amongst the church at this time? It's not explicitly stated, but it seems probable that there were. Again, just like we we talked about last time, uh, we're not really given in the Bible a clear story or account of how elders came to serve or how the office of elder came to be in the Christian church. And so you know that we have uh, concluded that the office of elder as it existed in the Jewish synagogue was simply carried over by the Jews, right? Coming from the synagogue and over into the Christian church, and they simply carried over the office of elder from the one to the other. And that's why we're not given any clear account, because there is no really clear account. The synagogues that came to believe in Jesus became churches, and the men who served as elders in the one continued to serve as elders in the new. And so the office of elder grew out of what was already existing in the Jewish synagogues. Now, 
we are given a much more clear account of the deacons. Because as we've said, God has placed a very solemn responsibility on, the, uh, on his people to care for the poor. And that is then the precise point uh, at which uh, the, the issue arises. That there is a need for a group of men to take that responsibility on themselves. Now before we go there, I just would show you uh, what the Old Testament, what God taught his Old Testament people as it pertains to the poor. And I can do that quite clearly, clearly from Deuteronomy in chapter 15. There's very interesting commands here. This is in Deuteronomy 15, where God is explaining the Sabbath years, the, the, the seventh year where all the debts were forgiven and the Jewish uh, slaves, servants, the indentured servants would be released. But then you'll notice in, in Deuteronomy 15 and verse 4 that God says, However, there will be no poor among you, since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, if, and notice the condition here, verse 5, if only you listen obediently to the voice of the Lord your God, and so on. The verse continues. So the goal here that God is aiming at, you may say, amongst his people, is that there would be no poor in the land. Now if you drop down to verse 11, you read what appears to be a complete contradiction to what God has just said. Because in verse 11, God speaks through Moses to the people. He says, For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. Now, how do we put those two truths together? Well, I think the, the, the truth of it, a congregation, is there's the reality, right? There's what is, and that is that there will always be poor in the land. But there's also the goal that they're aiming at, right? There's what ought to be. First of all, by keeping the commands of God, especially as they pertain to those seven-year jubilee days, right? Those, those years in which all the debts would be uh, forgiven and indentured servants would be returned, would be given their freedom back again but also by the generosity of the people of God to the poor. That there would be no poor in the land. That's the goal that they aimed at, but God also gives them realistically, of course, that there always will be poor in the land. So those two verses go together. But I think that when we put those two verses together, we see how God places this solemn responsibility on his people to open their hand freely to the poor, to care for them and to provide for them in all their needs with the goal that eventually there would be no poor among them. And God says, if you really obey my commands, and if you really keep the principles that I'm laying out for you and the law that I'm giving you, that will go a long way to completely eliminating poverty in your society. But, obviously, it would never be completely eliminated. The poor would always be there in some respects. So this is the responsibility that God places upon his people then to care for the poor. So, uh, again, naturally, the apostles being Jewish, right? And again, we always have to keep that in our minds, right? That all the Christians at this time are Jews, right? There are a few exceptions, but by, 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 by and large, all of the Christians at this time are Jewish people. They are adherents to the Jewish religion, and they have come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And so they are now Christians. And the apostles, again, have taken the leadership of this early church. They are uh, responsible for making the decisions, but as we come to Acts 6, we see that there is a problem. 
So let's consider this problem then. We are told in verse 1 that the church is greatly expanding and a, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. Now my friends, these different groups of people are, they're both Jewish. Let's be clear on that, right? They're both Jewish. But some of them are native to Palestine. I would call these Palestinian Jews. Now even that's kind of confusing for us, right? Because we think of Palestinians as the Arab people who have moved. That's, that's a modern day thing, right? But now think about the Palestinian Jews are those people who have come to believe in Christ who grew up in Palestine. They are native to the promised land. The Hellenistic Jews are Jews who have grown up in what is called the diaspora, right? The, they are outside of the land of Palestine, whom, no matter where they may have been. But they are people who continue to be Jews. They are continued to adhere to the Jewish religion. They've come to believe in Christ, but they did not live in the land of Palestine. Now you might say, then, what are they doing in the land of Palestine now? Well, uh, it's not entirely clear from the text why they're, they're here, there is, however, from the histories of those times, that there was in the Jewish mind this idea that it was a great honor to die and to be buried in the promised land. That was a strong idea in the minds of many Jewish people. So it's very likely that as these people grew older, and as the, the, the women outlived the men, generally, as, as even is true today, these widows would move back to the land of Palestine so that they could die and be buried in the land of Palestine. Now again, this is not something that Scripture tells us. This is a, a speculation from the history of the times. But it would also explain why there were so many widows in Jerusalem at this time. Right? That these people uh, moved, these, these elderly women, knowing that they'd come to the end of their life, had moved back to Palestine so that they could have the great honor of dying and being buried in the promised land. So all these widows. And now the complaint arises in the church that the apostles, as they administer the ministry of mercy in the church and as they care for the poor, are neglecting these Hellenist Jews, right? These Jews that didn't grow up in Palestine. Now, some people have said, was there, was there some kind of ill will toward these people? Uh, I suspect not. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why in a minute. I suspect not, but perhaps... Uh, again, this is some speculation, but you can understand that if these Hellenist Jews had left their families and moved back to Palestine, they probably didn't have the support system that the Palestinian Jews would have had, right? The Palestinian Jews would have been surrounded by their loved ones and by their family who would have supported them and taken care of them. Whereas these Hellenist Jews would have been kind of on their own. They wouldn't have had the family and the support system around them. They would have been more dependent on the church for their maintenance and for their relief in their suffering. And for whatever reason, in the early church, these Hellenist Jews are being neglected. Now, I suspect uh, from the text here that the reason they're being neglected, again, is not any ill will towards them, but because the apostles are so busy and occupied with other things. The church is growing rapidly on all sides. And so the, these widows are being neglected because the apostles simply don't have the time to commit to this ministry of mercy. And so because this is such an important issue that these widows must be taken care of, we come now to the solution. The solution. And here's why I say, uh, dear friends, that, these, that the apostles very likely had no ill will towards these Hellenist widows, these Hellenist Jews. 
The decision is made to take seven men, seven, common number back then, right? Seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, and to put them in charge of this ministry of mercy, to put them in charge of what we would call the benevolent fund, and to say from now on, you men, see to it that these widows are well taken care of and provided for. God has given us a responsibility to care for the poor, and we're not doing a good job of it. We're falling down on this part of our responsibility. So we're going to carve out this new office, and the deacons are going to be put in charge of that office. Now, it wasn't an entirely new office. In fact, when we go back to the Jewish synagogue, we find that there were such a thing as deacons even in the Jewish synagogue. So again, you might say, the apostles had a pattern, right, or a a polity, right, a, a sort of church organization that they could fall back on. They saw what happened in the synagogue, and they said, we can do the same thing here. And so these seven men are set apart for this work. Now, on the outline there, under the solution, you'll notice that I put deacons, and then the second one is Greeks. Because many Bible scholars have noted that the names that you have here, the first one is Stephen, which in the, in the original would be uh, Stephanus. That's a very Greek-sounding name, isn't it? Stephanus, whenever you have the S on the end, that's, that's kind of Greek. So you have uh, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. And they've noted that these are all Greek names. Now, it wasn't that uncommon that even Hebrew, Jewish, Palestinian Jews would take Greek names to themselves. But whatever the case may be, the apostles chose Greek people, at least people with some connection to this kind of Hellenist, these Hellenist widows. They chose those men to oversee this program. And that's why I say, my friends, it seems quite clear that the apostles had no ill will towards these Hellenist widows. Because they chose men from, you might say, that circle to take responsibility to meet that need. It appears that they did not choose Hebrew people. They did not choose Palestinian Jewish people to take charge of this benevolent fund, as it were. They chose people who were related and who were close to these Hellenist widows themselves to take care of their widows. Again, you see the wisdom of the apostles in that regard, right? They knew that they had fallen down, that they were deficient in their responsibilities here, and so they chose men who they knew would have an interest, right, who would have a desire to care for their own. And you'll notice that the last name, Nicholas, in verse 5, he's a proselyte. He's not even a Jew at all. He's a Gentile. Again, there were some Gentiles, but here you have uh, Nicholas. He's a proselyte from Antioch. These men were chosen, and after praying, they laid their hands on them and set them to their work. Now, two things before I I leave uh, part two on the outline there, and that is, do notice, uh, dear friends, from verse 3, that the apostles say, therefore, brethren, select. In other words, you select from among you seven men of good reputation. So the apostles have already established the precedent here now in the Christian church that the congregation selects its office bearers. Now here it's just deacons. Don't know if it applied to elders as well. It seems likely that it would have. But at least for the deacons, we have here the precedent set for all Christian churches, which we still follow today, right? that the congregation will select its own office bearers. Did the apostles have the right? Did they have the authority to appoint office bearers? 
They certainly did. They certainly did. But they did not do it. They said, you, you choose seven men and bring them to us. And we will ordain them and put them to work in their office. So you see how the process there works. In the first place, the congregation selected these men. Then one more comment about the process here. And here, and by the way, we're going to be doing this a lot this morning, going to 1 Timothy 3, where we have the, um, uh, the characteristics, qualifications of the deacons. And in 1 Timothy 3, you might just want to keep your finger there because we'll be going back here. But in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 10, we're reading about deacons here. The, 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 uh, it starts in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be. And then if you drop down to verse 10, it says, These men, or these men chosen to be deacons, must also first be tested. How? Then let them serve as deacons. And here's how they're to be tested, if they are beyond reproach. Now, uh, the translation there is, if they are beyond reproach, uh, I think it would be better to translate that if they are, uh, if there is no accusation brought against them. In other words, if, if no one has any blame or any accusation to make against them. And again, my friends, I think you can see here very clearly that the idea is that the names of these men would be put up, would be put forward. And the congregation would have the opportunity then to bring an accusation against these men. And if no accusation was brought, then these men would be cleared to go on their way to be uh, uh, appointed and set apart for this work of deacon. And again, I think you can see in our own practice of putting the names in the bulletin two weeks ahead of time, right, so that the congregation has this opportunity to bring their objections. But that word is a, is a key word there. It doesn't mean necessarily blameless so much as unblamed, if I can make that distinction, right? Nobody has brought anything against them. That's in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 10. If they are beyond reproach or if no one has brought any accusation against them. So there you see the process, right? A process where the men are tested, their names are put forward, and the congregation has an opportunity to bring their objections. And also the congregation itself has the right then to vote to select the men who will serve over them. So that the process. I quickly want to make some comments about the issue of deaconesses. Now this would not have been an issue for the most part because the men chosen in Acts 6 are clearly all men. But like I said, it wouldn't be an issue except that in Romans 16, we have a woman named Phoebe. In Romans 16 and verse 1, if you would turn there, and you'll see that Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Cancria. And if you have a Bible with any kind of a note or uh, uh, any kind of a commentary on it, you'll note that the word servant there, right, who is a servant of the church, which is at Cancria, is the word deacon, who is a deacon of the church, which is at Cancria. So then that raises the issue then. Are there deaconesses? Are there women, female deacons in the church? Well, I put these verses on the outline so that you could see them readily and quickly. Because the word diakonos in Greek, right, which is the word that we have as deacon, is a very general word, actually. <clears throat> and it just means a servant of any kind. Now, the, in the early church, they took that word and they pressed it into the service of this office, right? They said, now the deacon is going to be an office in the church. But still, the word bears this meaning in the, in the literature of the time of just a servant. So then it becomes difficult to know, well, is it referring to a servant 
Or is it actually referring in the more technical sense of a, a deacon, somebody holding the office of deacon in the church? And I put these verses on there. First of all, you have Romans 16.1, which I already read. But then look at Romans 15, verse 8. So just one chapter previous, Christ is called a diakonos. For I say that Christ has become a servant, as all the translations have. And the word servant there is that word diakonos. To the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God, and so on. So you see already that that, that word, right, is not used always in the sense. In fact, it's, it's more common that the word is used in the more broad sense. I have 1 Timothy 3, verse 8, right, where it says that deacons, now it's referring to the office, the men serving in that office. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity and so forth. But then, again, just one chapter following, the same word in pointing out these things to you, to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. So this, then, is the challenge, then, faced by the person who reads Romans 16, verse 1. Is Paul simply saying that Phoebe is a servant in the, in the same sense that she serves, she's, she's, she helps out the church, which is at Cancria, or is Paul saying that she is a deaconess of the church at Cancria? She actually holds the office of deacon. Well, my friends, it's, it's, uh, many, many people have struggled hard to understand this, of what Phoebe must have been. But there's one thing that that is quite clear, right? There's one thing that's quite clear here in this verse, and and that is that whatever Phoebe must have been, whatever she may have been called, Paul clearly says that the ministry of the word and the ministry of leadership and authority in the church is to lie with the elders. And that's, in fact, we read from Acts 6, that's one of the very reasons why the office of deacon exists in the first place. Right? So that the apostles could focus their, 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 their minds and their hearts and their prayers entirely upon that work. And the deacons could take some of the other tasks off their responsibility and be servants of the church in that regard. So in that regard, if, if Phoebe was a deacon in the sense that she held to the, you know, that she was called a deacon of the church at Cancria, it may mean that she was such a servant of the church. In fact, likely, in this particular context, Phoebe was the one who carried the letter of Romans that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. She was the the carrier, uh, as it were, the deliverer. She delivered the uh, letter to the church at Rome, and in that sense was was a servant. But it says she was a servant of the church, which is at Cancria. Well, again, I think for our purposes... Uh, regardless of how the, the, the Phoebe is understood there in Romans 16, verse 1, we still have very clearly in Scripture, right, that the, the leadership responsibility is the elders and the deacons, the very, the very purpose of their being established was to serve the church in a, in a way under the leadership of the elders. So that gives rise to the question then, you know, would, would somebody like the ladies who lead the ladies' Bible study in our church, would, would they be called deaconesses? Right? In one sense, the, the, biblically, you could say that, right? That, that they're called deacons. Uh, now, in our churches, uh, we've never had female deacons, and there's a reason for that. And that is because deacons in our churches do have a leadership role. Right? They do vote at our council meetings. And so they have that authority. They, they cast votes. And therefore, we as a denomination have said that, therefore, we're not going to have women in the office of deacon. But in one sense, we have many deaconesses in the church, don't we? 
And again, when we understand that word broadly as servants, right, who serve the church. Now, in our time, we use the word deacon very narrowly, right, for the people who hold the office of deacon. So I don't think it's that helpful then to use it to refer to deaconesses. It gives the wrong impression, doesn't it? But in one sense, the women in this church and the men should be good deacons, should be good servants of the church of Jesus Christ. And the office of deacon and the office of elder we restrict to males. Well, so much then, uh, well, one more thing about, about deaconesses, because there's one other verse that is often appealed to it. Again, we go back now to 1 Timothy 3. Before I leave deaconesses, I do want to address this. In 1 Timothy 3, some have read... So you have in verse Timothy 3 and verse 8, when Paul gives instructions about deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity. Verse 10, he talks about these men must be tested. We talked about that. But then in verse 11, it says women. And you'll notice that the NASB translators have translated that word women must likewise be dignified. It kind of gives the impression that, oh, and if you have women deacons, right? So if the deacon that we're talking about happens to be a woman, she must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips. Now that seems very unlikely. And, and the word woman in Greek is also means wife. It's very, again, it's one of those words that goes either way. The interpreter, the translator has to decide, does it mean woman here or wife? Now here, I almost, I'm certain it means wife. And I'll tell you why. Because when you get, so let's read verse 11. Women or the wives of these deacons must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. And then verse 12, deacons must be husbands. It just doesn't seem to make sense that Paul would have inserted between two instructions given to deacons in verse 10, and in verse 12, some instruction on women deacons. Why would Paul suddenly break his train of thought there, say something about women deacons, and then suddenly return back to male deacons? Again, just in terms of interpreting the text on its face, that doesn't seem to follow. And so I don't believe that is referring to women deacons. I think that's referring to the wives of the deacons. The wives of the deacons must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate and faithful in all things. So, enough on the subject of deaconesses. I really don't think this is a terribly difficult issue because, again, the Bible is so clear that whatever Phoebe was, whatever role she may have played in the church at Cancria, the Bible clearly says that the very purpose of the deacons is to free up the elders for their position and their function of, of the leadership in the church and the ministry of the word and prayer. So now let us quickly then move through these six observations that I would like to make on the message that we have, the scripture that we have this morning. In the first place, my friends, the church and the poor. The church and its own poor, and the church and the poor outside of it. The church has a responsibility for the poor. My friends, this is a mandate from God himself, that we are to open our hands freely to the poor. And in fact, the care for the poor is so important, and it registers so high, you might say, on God's list of priorities, that he has a unique function, a unique role in the church for men who have the specific responsibility of caring for the poor and the downtrodden in society. Now, in our own day, this work is greatly complicated, isn't it, by all the government welfare programs that exist for the poor in our land. And so it is excruciatingly difficult to know how do we help the poor without hurting them 
In fact, there have been books written on just that subject from concerned evangelical Christian people. Books written on the subject of how do we help the poor without hurting them. And again, I'm not going to get into all the issues of dependency and and poverty and and, and how to handle all that. Of course, that's a difficult subject. Uh, But still, there is this, this, this mandate, my friends, that in some way, shape, or form, we have the responsibility to help the poor. It's not something that we can say, well, we're just going to pass it off to the government. It's not something that can say, well, you know, just giving people money hurts them, it causes them more problems. No, we must take seriously this responsibility to help the poor. Now I move to the second place. And I just want to make that comment there, my friends, as I've already made it, on the process that the church has in selecting its deacons. In the first place, they are not appointed. They are not appointed. You'll see that the apostles give the responsibility to the congregation as a whole to select its own deacons. And our own churches, we continue to follow that yet today, don't we? That our, uh, our council does not appoint deacons. Our council does not appoint elders. We nominate men, and the church selects the men that they choose for the office. And again, that's a, that's a practice with a clear mandate in Scripture, isn't it? Second of all, in part in terms of the process, the elders and the deacons that are put up in our congregation are put to the test. They are put up. Their names are put forward so that the congregation has opportunity to bring objections or accusations. And my friends, that is something that should be taken seriously in our church. It is not enough to bring a complaint about the men who've been put up after they've been chosen. No, there's that two weeks in our church polity and the way our church is organized in which you have opportunity to make your objections to the names who've been put forward. And those men who are not blamed, who have no accusations made against them, proceed then to that congregational vote. And again, I know that seems kind of a trifle, but I think it's important that we as a church understand that the things we do, even in our congregational meetings, are not something that, you know, a group of men in a corner somewhere came up with on their own. These are things that have a clear uh, precedent in the scripture, in apostolic practice. And I think that we can take a measure of pride in that, my friends. That we base our practice on what the scripture itself gives us. I come then to the third place. My friends, I wonder if you noticed the prominence of prayer. Prayer. In Acts chapter 6, in Acts chapter 6, the apostles asked that these deacons be selected and set apart for their work. Why? So that they can give themselves uh, to the ministry of... It's in verse 4. In Acts 6 and verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now I know last week was the week that we talked to the elders but I have to speak to you again. I wonder if our office and the way we carry out our office is in that order, brothers. That we devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I, got, I have to say, I don't think of the office of elder that way many times. And to my shame. I think of the office of elder as providing leadership, as having meetings and Uh, taking charge of the ministry of the word and making sure that there's a pastor here in the pulpit and that the truth is preached. But I'm often not led to prayer first on the list. 
And yet the apostles clearly say that, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And congregation, I would, I, would, I would press that upon all of you, that in this sense we all should be elders. And that if the apostles see it as important to minister the word, but that it's even more important that they be men of prayer, doesn't just shame us in some regard. And I speak to myself this morning. Are we men and women of prayer? I know that there's, there's opportunity and there's a place for bringing complaints against office bearers. But I wonder how many of those complaints have been baptized in prayer before they're brought. And I wonder how many of those complaints would change their tone and their form if we took that complaint and laid it forth before the Lord in prayer first and baptized it in prayer. Do you lift up your elders in prayer, my friends? Do you lift up your pastor in prayer? You know I can't do this in my own strength. You know that these elders are just men. They are weak men, just like all the rest of us. They have no special halo around their head. They have no special gift, right, that that makes them immune to sin and to saying things that they regret later. And that should lead us, my friends. It should drive us to our knees to pray and to make it a practice, a routine of daily prayer for the elders and the deacons But at any rate, certainly the elders have the responsibility of prayer. But I'll notice also that when these deacons have been nominated and they've been chosen and they are brought in verse 6 before the apostles and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Again, prayer is put first. I think that uh, for myself, for sure, and probably many of you, I am rebuked by that emphasis on prayer. I find prayer tends to be something that gets pushed to the side. If I'm busy, well, I have a little less time for prayer that day. Well, my friends, let us consider this. And as the apostle said in 2 Thessalonians 3, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you. I come to the fourth, Then this is specifically the responsibility of the deacons, that they have the ministry of mercy. They have charge of the ministry of benevolence in the church. And brother deacons, then this is what you should give yourself to do. And by the way, it's not simply a ministry of, of benevolent funds, right? It's not simply a ministry of, of bringing money to people who are in need of it, but it's a ministry of mercy, of encouragement. It is a ministry of visitation. Yes, deacons should visit. Brothers, this, this should be part of your responsibility. This should be part of your practice and your routine. That as deacons, you visit the elderly in the congregation and that you visit those who are not elderly. I think it should focus especially on those who are in need. But this is a role that deacons have. And what a privilege, what a joy it is to meet with the needy in our congregation, the lonely people who sit hour after hour in their, in their uh, uh, assisted living or in their, in their homes, wherever it may be. But now you have the blessing and the responsibility uh, to visit them and to encourage them. You'll notice that the, the characteristics given for deacons in 1 Timothy 3, that they be men of dignity, or in other words, men of honor, not double-tongued, saying one thing, doing another, not addicted to much wine, that's an obvious one, not greedy for money, right? Clearly, deacons are people who handle the funds of the church, and they need not be uh, people who are, who, who, whose life is nothing else but just chasing the dollar from, from morning till night, right? That's not the quality of a deacon, 
But you'll also notice what qualifications are not given to a deacon. Of the elders, we are told that they are not to be a new convert. That's in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 3, I believe. Not a new convert. Well, we're not told that with deacons. Deacons can be younger men. Nor are deacons to be able to teach. That is something that was also listed under the qualifications of elders. Deacons may not have that gift for teaching as the elders have had, as the elders need to have. But deacons may have other gifts. Now, I'll simply point out, my friends, that the scripture makes it very clear that even though the deacons do not have that responsibility of taking charge of the teaching ministry of the church, neither are they banned from teaching, and I'll make bold to say even preaching. In fact, the example that we're given in the, in the latter part of chapter, uh, Acts chapter 6 is of Stephen. And what a preacher he was. He was an apologist, an evangelist for the church, and went out preaching and doing miracles, and God blessed his ministry abundantly. So, deacons do not have to have the gift of teaching as an elder is expected to have, but neither are they banned from it. Then, my friends, in the... Uh, well, yes, so on the outline there I put Stephen and Philip. Both, actually, both men are examples of deacons who did plenty of teaching and were mighty evangelists and missionaries in the early church. I come to the fifth observation here, and that is the great deacon, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And here, my friends, I can turn to 1 Peter 2 and verse 21. 1 Peter 2 and verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. I think this is the same verses I read last week when I was talking about the elders. My friends, this is Jesus set before us as the great deacon. Why? Because he came not to be served, but to serve. And that's, what, that's, that's the privilege of a deacon, is to lay his life out in service to the Lord and in service to the church. And you have set before you, brother deacons and all congregation, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is the great servant of his church. Even to the extent of bearing in his own body our sins, no sins of his own, no guilt of his own, but he took our guilt and our sins and thus set an example for us, my, my, my dear friends, as the great deacon, the great servant of the church of Christ. He laid down his life for his people. That's the example that you may keep in your eye as you go about your work. And by the way, it's that example that empowers you for your work, to keep you going in your work, even when it grows weary, even when the sacrifice becomes more than you can handle, fix your eyes on the great deacon, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And last of all, this wonderful reward. I go back to 1 Timothy 3 now. God promises a wonderful reward to deacons. And in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith. That is in Christ Jesus. You know, I can't help but think, when I was in Grand Rapids, 
I was, at the, I was, I was uh, attending an African-American church, and it was a service very different from our own, as you can imagine. And after the church, the man who had collected the, uh, who I assumed was a deacon, it was an older man. And I'll never forget, I went up to him and I said, Brother, I said, how long have you been a deacon? And he says, well, for as long as I can remember. And I said, well, brother, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you now? He said, 96. I thought to myself, boy, when this man gets to heaven, I don't know, I didn't know this man at all, I still don't, but I'm just assuming the best, right? That when this man gets to heaven after spending, what, 80 years as a servant of the Church of Christ, his reward will be great. But in Paul is talking in 1 Timothy 3 here, not about the reward you get in heaven, but he says you obtain for, your, for themselves a high standing. That means the respect of all the people in the church. We respect deacons. Yes, we respect elders. But when we see those men who have labored hard as servants in the lower office of the church, God says they will have a high standing and then furthermore, and great confidence or boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, when I read those words, and great confidence or boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus, I immediately think of Stephen. My friends, when I talk to you about elders, I put before you the example of Paul. Remember from Acts chapter 20? But when we think about deacons, my friends, we have to have before us the example of Stephen. Stephen was the deacon who is the fulfillment of this promise that God gave to deacons, that they would have great boldness and you'll remember, my friends, that no one had greater boldness than Stephen. He stood in front of the Jewish Supreme Court in Jerusalem, the highest body of Jewish leaders anywhere in the world. And he said, you crucified the Lord of glory. You crucified Jesus Christ, your Messiah, your King, and put him on a cross. Now, my friends, is that boldness? Is that boldness? Who here would ever have that kind of courage to stand in that situation and to say, you crucified your own king, your own Messiah. The highest, most authoritative body of Jewish leaders in the world. Stephen, my friends, is a living embodiment. A living example of the fulfillment of God's faithfulness to this promise. That those who serve well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence, great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Stephen, my friends, he stands before us as a man who had a courage that was much beyond anything that he could have come up with on his own. And that's such a beautiful story. And he, of course, ultimately received the the greatest reward because as he died, do you remember that from the scriptures? As he died, he looked and he saw Christ standing, standing, not sitting. He saw Christ standing, ready to receive it. Well done, good and faithful servant. And he heard it that day, my friends. And so will every deacon hear it with gladness and joy. May God grant it, my friends, for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, how we rejoice in the promises that are given us in your word. And I pray, Lord, that every deacon here who has served or who is serving in the office of deacon would rejoice to hear these glorious promises that are made to those deacons who serve well, that they'll have a high standing much respect and honor in the church of God, and that they will have great boldness to go forth into this world. 
and to bring the light of the gospel into the darkest places. They can do it with courage. They can do it with even reckless disregard for their own life because they know that the Lord Jesus Christ stands in heaven waiting to receive them with the glad cry, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, I pray that we would keep in our eye then the great deacon, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom on our behalf. He took our sin and guilt. He served in such a way that he did not even regard his life as something to be held on to, but he gave it away that we might be set free. Lord, we rejoice in Christ our Savior. We thank you, O Lord, for faithful deacons in this church and in many churches. We pray, O God, that you would raise up and that you would continue to raise up faithful men who could serve in the office as deacons and that there would be men and women in this church who can be deacons, servants of the church, ready to lay themselves out for the work of the church that you have called us to be a part of. Lord, we commit ourselves then into your hands and pray for your blessing to be upon us. Hear us, Lord, as we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in the red hymnal now and turn to Psalm 34. We'll sing 34a. Uh, 34a, and let's sing the, the first three verses. The first three verses. I will at all times bless the Lord and praise him with my voice. I make my boast in God the Lord. Let humble souls rejoice. So let's sing verses 1, 2, and 3 of 34a in the red hymnal.
blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.